Welcome back into Play by Playcast. It is the second episode since our rebirth as a podcast. Everybody waiting four long years for episode 194, I think this is. Welcome back into the Play by Playcast podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters hosted by a play by play broadcaster. I will say it is much more awkward doing the intro while the person you're about to have on the show is staring at you because I used to record these after the fact. Uh, so we'll have to shrink this up on future episodes. But Drew Carter is our guest, voice on television for road games for now of the Boston Celtics and also of ESPN. Uh, Drew, thanks for coming by. Joel, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I was not staring at you. I was staring at your beautiful Syracuse lacrosse banner in the background. That's what I was looking at. I promise. 2008 national champs, baby. We got to get back to the summit, man. I think I think Gary's the guy, but it might take a couple more years. You would hope so. But did you call, so for people that don't know Drew, uh, went to Syracuse, graduated in 2019. Yep. Correct. Uh, Mm -hmm. Did you call anything awesome when you were in college? Anything. I mean, wow. Multiple things. So I mean, like best game. Did you get like a great NCAA tournament experience? Yeah. So we'll, we'll get into this as we talk about, you know, my journey to this point but my whole life and career has been one big stroke of luck so senior year we had a an awesome class like my best friends in the world to this day are still the guys I graduated with our football team won 10 games and that was the one winning season Dino Babers had in seven years until this past season when he got fired um, our basketball team was good not great A bubble team made the tournament loss in the first round, but we did go to Duke and beat them at Cameron when they had Zion Williamson, R.J. Barrett, and Cam Reddish. Um, That was an overtime game. Called it with Noah Eagle. Um, Lacrosse was sort of similar. Didn't didn't have a great team. Didn't have a great finish to the season, but some cool moments as well. Um, But yeah, we just got mad lucky. We got wicked lucky, I should say, now that uh, that I'm a Boston resident with the, the events we got to call. You have to put the accent on it. Like, w- wicked, wicked lucky, wicked lucky kid. Yeah. <laughs> um. Let, let's talk a little bit about your your path if we want to dive right in. Um. Voice on, on television of the Celtics taking over for Mike Gorman. Um. Or transitioning with Mike Gorman for this year. Prior to that. Um. Or I guess still like concurrently with ESPN, right? Yeah. Technically full time with both. Okay. Yeah. Um. But before that, you were in television in Alabama. Two years mm-hmm. of local news. Um, timely, actually, like, I'm like cutting my own questions off in my head. Uh, best Nick Saban story. Cause he just retired. So I asked Nick Saban, I think one question in a press conference, because the thing with Alabama football is it's everything down there. I, to me, the reason they say it just means more in the Southeast is because nothing else matters. So it actually means the most, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the number one thing. Like I always say, you might as well have on your driver's license, which team you root for in the state of Alabama. It's your height, your weight, your eye color, Alabama, or Robert. That's oh, how. Saying, and Troy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Troy. Yeah, sure. UAB, uh, Samford, if you really, you know, want to get in the weeds, but anyway, it's so important. So anyway, there's so many people at those press conferences asking questions. I never really felt the need to, you know, put on my Dan Rather hat and, you know, ask a hard hitter. But I did ask him a question once where they were playing Tennessee. And at that point, Jeremy Pruitt was the coach at Tennessee. 
excuse me, I'm a little under the weather today. Uh, but Jeremy Pruitt was the coach. And at that point, Nick Saban, like he had assistants at half the SEC schools. So the previous week they had played Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Now they're playing Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee. And last week someone had asked him, what's your favorite memory of coaching on the same staff as Jimbo Fisher? And he had said, playing noontime basketball. It wasn't like this meeting about, you know, how to dial up a pressure or this celebration of a national championship. It was playing basketball at noon. So the following week, I'm like, great idea. I'm going to ask if you ever played noontime basketball with Jeremy Pruitt. It was the first time I'd ever asked him a question, though. So I'm nervous. My heart is pounding. You know, you'd think that going to Syracuse, I'd have some experience asking potentially curmudgeon coaches who don't like the media questions, but I was still really nervous. And so the way they do it is they have a microphone that gets passed around. The TV people are in the back and the print writers are sort of in the front. And so it's toward the end of his question section session and uh, the microphone comes back to me and I can literally see my heart beating through my shirt. I was that nervous. And uh, I get the mic. SID points at me and I go, did you ever play new time basketball? Jeremy Pruitt. I was so nervous. Like I could barely even get through it. And Saban looked at me like I had four heads and I was so nervous. I'm like, I'm about to get roasted and this is going to be everywhere. And I'm going to sound like an idiot. And Nick Saban's going to have another viral clip. He, he looks at me. He's like, what? and then he looks over at the SID, Josh. Thankfully, Josh heard the question and translated it. And Nick Saban actually laughed like he thought it was funny. And that to this day is one of my proudest moments that, that I made Nick Saban smile. That's actually, that's a great story. That's well, perfect. See, and here's the thing, Joel, like I think people have this misconception and clearly so did I about Nick Saban. I really don't think he hates the media. No, they just um, don't like doing media. But like if you get them the right way, then. Yeah. Yeah. They, well, they don't like doing it because, I mean, Nick Saban more than maybe anybody has a one track mind. It seems like the only thing he cares about is football. Um, but I think if you ask a smart, you know, well thought out question and you don't you don't make any assumptions in the question. Yeah. Then you're not going to get ripped. But like a Sabin or a Bayheim or a Belichick or a Popovich, when you try to sound like the smartest person in the room while asking your question, that's where you're going to get in trouble. Like Rick Carlisle, I think, is kind of similar to that. So we were in Indy a couple of days ago, and some guy asked a pretty long meandering question that started with, you know, a couple of the players were talking about how you told them they need to have a better attention to detail and blah, 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 blah. And Rick goes, who said that? What are you talking about? Who said that? He's like, I think it was Buddy and Benedict Math or something like that. And it's like, at a, cer at a certain point, it's a good lesson. I think it's something we probably both learned at Syracuse, Joel, is you got to be quick with your question. There's no need to prove to everybody how smart you are. You don't need to couch everything for 30 seconds. Just ask the question. That's what Bayham would say. If you have a question, I'll answer it. What's your question? Yeah. Don't yell a statement at me and expect me to respond to it. Um, now I feel like I need to respond with like the world's crispest, cleanest question ever. Mm -hmm. um, no pressure. Don't make it a yes or no. I make it open-ended. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually just going to make a statement and ask for your thoughts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, when you were in television at Alabama, in Alabama, though, I know play by play has always been your, your dream, your want, your desire. What did you get professionally from a developmental standpoint that helped towards what you do now because you were on live television 
every single day. Yeah. So a couple of things with that. Number one, from a professional standpoint, I feel like I grew a lot um, because at Syracuse, there was a lot of focus on, on the air, right? You, there wasn't like at Citrus TV, I never produced news live at six. And when we were doing classes with our capstone and stuff, we would build, we'd build a rundown, but it wasn't like you were really producing stuff. Um, at least not in my experience. When I got to Alabama, anytime I anchored the sports block, we would produce it. We'd stack the rundown. We'd write it. We'd edit the video. Uh, we'd make the graphics ourselves and in our internal system there. And it was just, it was a lot of stuff behind the scenes that people don't ultimately see. All they see is, you know, me talking on camera. And I, I think that made me way better um, for multiple reasons. Number one, when something is like your baby, I just feel like the end result is going to be better because I produced all of it. I knew exactly why each slug was in there. I knew why each line was in the script. I felt like it all made sense. I felt like it flowed. And I thought as a result, I became better on the air. And I think more importantly, when you do a variety of different roles, you understand everything that goes into it. Um, so now doing the Celtics games or calling a game at ESPN or hosting in studio, I feel like I'm not going to make a ridiculous outlandish request. You know, hey, can we edit this? Hey, can we get the uh, the video of the 1978 uh, semifinals from March Madness at, at you know, 6.15 left in the first half? There's this one clip that I think could really tell the story. It's like, and, and oh, by the way, we're on the air in 15 minutes. All right, let's see if we can find that. You know, there, there's just, there are certain things that you realize you just understand how difficult certain tasks are and and you start to learn that like the job of going on and reading the script or calling the game is not the hardest job and not the most important job in my in my opinion because ultimately people want to see what's happening um and same thing as you know graphics and local news or the the highlights in local news so i learned that professionally i think like that made me a lot better but i actually think in two years in alabama i grew more personally than professionally which is not to say I don't think I improved down there, but I think when you're at Syracuse, it's you're sort of in a bubble in the sense that everyone who goes there is there for a very specific purpose. Everyone there wants to be great. And when you get into the real world, I think there's a tendency, at least this is how I felt, to think that, okay, now I'm a professional. I'm going to be surrounded by people who have the same you know level of determination. They're going to work as hard as I do. They want it to be great as badly as I do. And you get to, to the professional world and realize that if for a lot of people, it's, it's just a job, which is there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not like a passion project like it is for every kid who goes to Syracuse. And when I was in school, I mean, I was like the quintessential broadcast nerd. I think I went to two games as a fan in my four years at Syracuse. I was either calling it or reporting on it or making a tape at it. Like, I think when Jason Tatum came to Syracuse when he was at Duke, I was in the top level making a play-by-play -play tape to try to get cleared at WAER. You know, I, I, I had like, and I think as, as grateful as I am for that and as much as I wouldn't change anything, I sort of do feel like that might have stunted my growth as a person because I didn't really have the tradition, the tra excuse me, the traditional college experience. You know what I'm saying? So when I got to the real world in Alabama, it was like my first chance to be a normal human being after leaving home. And I feel like that really forced me to grow up. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it, it's interesting, the perspective when you talk about 
learning all the roles, learning all the jobs, learning what goes into everything, because a couple interviews that I've heard you do since um, you took over for the Celtics. And whenever you talk about games, you've called them shows. Um, yeah. And, and ultimately it's television. Like we are producing television shows, but to call it a show is an interesting turn of phrase because a show has components and a show tells a story that is well thought out in advance. And obviously there's an improv aspect to it because the game is happening in an untold fashion. But um, how do you now look at structuring play-by-play -play and structuring games and working with your producer and, and your, your analyst and your sideline reporter um, to kind of attack a cohesive story every night? Do you take a, a similar tact? Yeah, I think it's a, a fine line, Joel, because I mean, you know this as well as anybody, like you said, you have to react organically to what's happening and you have to be ready to you know, throw out the rundown, as it were, and just talk about what's happening in front of you. Mike Gorman, the guy I'm following with the Celtics, he tells a story about his first Celtics game ever. He was working with Tommy Heinsohn, legendary player, Mr. Celtic, who called Celtics games for decades and was beloved here, you know, and Mike had all these notes. He spent hours and hours prepping, and he might have been a little nervous his first game. And he's it's right before the game. He's going through his notes, and Tommy looks over at him, and he goes, what's all that? Can we swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah by all means. What's that bullshit? Mike's like, it's my notes. It's my prep for the game. Tommy takes all the notes, picks up the stacks of paper, and throws it over the railing. And uh, Mike's, like, freaking out, like, why would you do that? That's all my prep. Like, and I, what am I going to do now? Tommy's like, we're going to watch what happens and we're going to talk about it. So I think to a certain extent, you do need to be ready to do that and just say, I, I had all these ideas. The game dictated that we're not going to talk about it. So we're not going to do it. But at the same time, if you think about how we're wired, people love a story. There's a reason so many people in our business, Joel, call themselves storytellers. I think at our core, that's what we all are. So you have to tell the story of the teams, the players, and of the game. And, you know, to me, I, I think back to when I was, you know, a kid watching sports and you know, even to this day. And I realize one of the best feelings as a sports fan watching a game is when you feel like you've seen a fully realized story. And part of the way the announcers can do that is by introducing you to an interesting character who has a cool background or maybe has you know taken his game to a new level this year or maybe has some family in the audience because he's playing close to home, something like that. And then if you get to the end of the story and that person is the hero, all of a sudden, that's where the magic happens to me. And that's why, and that's why I, I call it a show. And, and I got really good advice from Bill Roth, who's another Syracuse guy who's given advice to a ton of us. And when I first started at ESPN, I was struggling with how to prep effectively because you can spend 40 hours prepping for a college football game, but it doesn't, it's not going to be productive if you don't have a, a specific goal in mind. If you have, you know, six different notes on the third string defensive tackle, but you don't have the kicker's career long, you've wasted your time. Because you need to know what's going to be relevant pretty much every time you're you're doing a broadcast. I was like, Bill, I feel like I'm just prepping the wrong stuff. He goes, remember, you're prepping for a show, not just a game. And it's it's different, I think, in TV versus radio, 
where in radio, you know, you're basically talking the entire time. So you need to have more stuff with that being said, like you're describing more of the action. So it's not necessarily as much background info, but in radio, I always felt like I was prepping for a game. Whereas in TV, we're prepping for a show and you have to think about how you're going to come in and out of elements, go to break, come back from break, cap everything at the end. And it's just, it's really involved. So I, I always think about it in terms of what we're presenting to the viewer, as opposed to just how am I digesting this game? Um, you talked about Mike and advice that he's given you. And you're in the unique situation because you guys are both doing the job simultaneously. Um, yeah. So it's not just he's gone and it's you. Everybody, I'm, I'm sure you've been asked a million times, how do you replace a legend? Like, how do you follow in his footsteps? But how do you, what, what's your relationship like with Mike in terms of um, being able to replace him in a way that like you're learning from him, you're getting to know him, you're doing the same job. So he's calling one game, you're calling the next game. Um, and, and like, being a voice of the Celtics as opposed to just two guys who are dropping in and calling the game? Yeah, it's a great question, Joel. I've thought about it a ton. I actually went out with Mike Scal and Mike's wife, Terry, um, last night after the game, which is why I'm sick. Uh, no, just kidding. We we weren't <laughs> out that late. But we, we we went out and grabbed a beer at, you know, at this place, like a few steps from the garden. Um, Mike has been incredible to me. And I'm I'm trying to... Every time I discuss this, I make it a point to say I'm following Mike. I'm not replacing Mike or succeeding Mike. The verb is follow because there will never be another Mike Gorman. I know that. And in a way, that's sort of liberating because I'm not going to try to be him. You know, nobody can. And it, it does make it a little bit awkward this year, though, because for the fan, I think it might be a little bit jarring. It's like they, a lot of people might not realize what's going on this year. <laughs> they still might not understand. Like for some games, it's Mike. For some games, it's Drew. I'm still kind of confused. I don't want it to be jarring for people to flip on a road game and have me talk 10 times more than Mike does, you know? But ultimately, Mike and I do the job differently. So I'm trying to balance being myself and being authentic with you know, doing right by Mike and not making it a harsh transition for the fans. So I've thought about this a lot. And the key thing is, number one, Mike has been amazing and super gracious. I think it could have been easy for him to see that I was the one following him and be like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, Mike has been calling Celtics games almost twice as long as I've been alive. And I'm not from here. He's from Dorchester. He's a lifelong Celtics fan worked with Tommy Heinsohn, the guy's an OG. And, and I call him that sometimes, like, what's up, OG? Do you want to grab a drink post-game? The guy is like the voice of the Celtics. And for him to have that title, by the way, is remarkable because Johnny Most is one of the biggest legends in sports broadcasting, and he was the voice of the Celtics. So I, I know, like, the prestige of this job and the history of this job, and those things aren't lost on me. And so I just appreciate how kind Mike has been every step of the way. Because he never, he never, as far as I know, had that reaction at all. He actually says he was happy that he didn't know the person, you know, following him before before the announcement. 
I think he knew like he knew he'd gotten a heads up, but he like we didn't have a relationship before I got here. And I think he said he was happy about that because now we get a chance to develop this organic thing. And we I mean, we both get to make a friend. We get to lean on each other, sort of. And I get to ask him for advice. And it's been it's been really cool. The other key part of that is the producer and director have been doing this for 20 plus years each. Paul Lucy and Jim Edmonds. And they're two of the best I've ever worked with in their respective jobs. And they're still here. Um, and like we talked about earlier, Joel, like I think the the producer and director, in my opinion, are a lot more important for the show's success than the play-by-play guy. That's for sure. So the fact that they're still there sort of takes some of the pressure off me and, and makes it a lot easier. And now we can just go out there and have fun. But I will say I was very anxious at the start because, like I said, I, I know how important this job is. I know how much the broadcast means to people. Like think about the Mike and Tommy show. You know, the local broadcast is important everywhere, but I feel like especially in Boston, just because people felt like they knew those guys, you know, um, and Mike's been doing it for so long. People, every time I'm with Mike, whether it's at the garden or anywhere else, 10 different people say, I grew up with you. And it's like, oh my God, like, holy shit, that's a lot of pressure for the next guy. That's you me. Know? Yeah. Right. So, but it's also really exciting. And I think what, Mike's kindness has allowed me to do is reframe that from a lot of pressure to a really cool opportunity. Um, And so now we're just having a lot of fun. I hope the fans are too. What's the best part about being in the NBA? Probably the Equinox. That is the hotel gym (laughs) at the uh, San Francisco hotel. You're just like, you're living a different life right now, aren't you? It's ridiculous, dude. Like it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, The, so in the for, for those who don't know, the collective bargaining agreement between the players and the teams essentially states that the teams have to stay in the nicest hotels possible. So here we are. I'm content with like a Hampton Inn and Suites. That's where we typically stay. That That's the level we're talking about at ESPN. You put me in a courtyard Marriott, I'm like, that's awesome. Perfect. By the way, Marriott is the correct way to pronounce the hotel chain, not Marriott. Everyone gets it wrong, right? And I learned that when uh, they sponsored the NFL draft and all the billboards said, brought to you by Marriott. Is that the right way to say it? Yes, that was, it a, is. That was a good impression, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. So I was cool with the, the Marriott the whole time. Uh, and I still am. But now we're staying in like the Four Seasons and the Ritz and it's, it's insane. And it's like I, I walk in there, I'm like, I don't belong here. This is crazy. Like Jason Tatum. Yeah, this is your hotel, dude. But me, I should be, I should be down the street. I should I'm be at a holiday. Inn. I'll, I'll, I'll walk to the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so that's really, really cool. In all seriousness, though, we have a, a security guy, our head of security with the Celtics on the road, who is like, you think about a security guy, and this dude fits the archetype to a T. Stoic, doesn't smile very much, usually dressed in all black awesome guy who takes great care of us, but not exactly like the most bubbly dude. And I saw him getting on the team flight about a week ago. I'm getting on the plane, walking up the stairs, and there's Jim, our security guy. And uh, he goes, well, I, he he wears a suit for the home game, so he had changed, and he was wearing his, like, athleisure. I'm like, Jim, you changed? Looking good, man. Love it. He's like, why are you so happy all the time? Why are you always smiling? And I'm thinking about it. I'm like, why am I? Because I'm not always like that. But every time I'm around him, I am. And the answer is, being in the NBA is the coolest thing ever. 
like you walk into these arenas, there are 20,000 people there. A lot of them are dressed in green because the Celtics have great fans and they travel well. And maybe it'll wear off, Joel, but at this point, every time I'm on the plane or I'm in the arena or I'm calling the game, I'm just on top of the world because like I can't still can't fully wrap my head around the idea that like I'm traveling with the Celtics and calling these games. It's just really cool. Who'd you grow up a fan of? Well, it's funny you ask because we beat the Timberwolves last night and that's my team. Or at least it used to be when I was growing up in Minnesota. <laughs> I have, my phone case is Kevin Garnett and Randy Moss. So I'm, a, I'm all I'm wearing a Vikings hat. I was well, a Kevin Minnesota Garnett's the right guy. guy. Like anything's possible. They'll they'll love him here. Yes, correct. And Randy Moss also had his best season in Boston after leaving Minnesota. So hopefully I can follow in those guys footsteps and succeed after going from Minnesota to Boston. Um, How did you become what have you done to know everything you ever could possibly need to know about the Boston Celtics? A lot of YouTube videos. I, I watch old Celtics games like they're movies which I guess sort of ties back into the show aspect we were talking about, like game seven of the 2010 finals. Oh yeah. Watch. And it, I highly recommend anybody watches that game because it's amazing. It's an amazing time capsule of, you know, what it was like back then. And speaking of 2010, that same year, Joe Missoula, now the head coach of the Celtics was, was playing at West Virginia at the time. They upset Kentucky in the elite eight. Kentucky had DeMarcus Cousins, Eric Bledsoe, John Wall, Patrick Patterson. They were stacked. They were the one seed. And Joe Missoula in West Virginia, Bob Huggins was the coach. They threw this 1-3-1 kind of junky zone at them and ended up beating them. reason that was relevant is because the Celtics played a bunch of zone against the Pacers last weekend. And someone on social media made the connection. Drew Holiday, the you know technically smallest guy on the floor for the Celtics, was sort of playing the big man role in our 2-1-2. And Joe Missoula, the smallest guy on the floor for West Virginia, was sort of doing the same thing in that Elite Eight game. So I went back and I watched that broadcast, and it's amazing. Dick Enberg and Jay Billis are on the call. Mentioned all the guys from Kentucky. You know, Bob Huggins is coaching West Virginia. So stuff like that, I think, you know, it, it sort of has happened organically where just talking to people in and out of the organization, I've... I've kind of dived into the history of the team and that's, you know, ancient history, like all the way back to the original Celtics and then the Bill Russell and Tommy Heinsohn days. And then more recent history, like Isaiah Thomas's 50 point game after his sister passed away, stuff like that. I think um, for me, it's, it's happening in a way that it's not like I'm, you know, locking myself in my apartment and reading the the story of every season of the Celtics. It's more just talking to people and then making a note on something and then going and researching it later. So I sound like I've been here for as long as Mike has. Walk me through how you got to Boston. Um, I think people would say, oh, well, he was here, right? Like he was working at ESPN. He's living in Connecticut. It just makes sense. He's the up and coming guy who who happens to be in the area. Um, but what's the process like of getting connected with an NBA franchise? And then I've, I've listened to other interviews where you talked about going through the audition uh, so showing up and and sitting down and, and doing an audition tape for an NBA job. Yeah, it, it was a long process. It was like um, I would I would compare the process of getting the Celtics job to a two and a half hour movie where for the first two hours and 20 minutes, nothing really happens. And then in the last 10 minutes, 
there's the climax and then bang, all this crazy shit happens. And all of a sudden you've arrived at a happy ending. That's, that's how this process was for me. So I started talking to the NBC sports Boston people in April. And I know, you know, this Joel, but for, for people who don't like the Celtics don't sign my paychecks. I'm not a Celtics employee. I'm an NBC sports Boston employee. Every team is a little bit different, but I think this is a pretty standard protocol for this job. I'd be hired by NBC Sports Boston, but they would need approval from the actual team. And so we started talking in April because at that point, I don't think they knew Mike's plan necessarily, or maybe they knew it, but they had the idea that they wanted to bring in another play-by-play announcer and sort of start the pass, the passing of the baton from Mike to the next guy. So in April, I started talking to them and from the jump, I was like, there's no way this happens. There's no way I get this job. They're going to hire someone who's famous or from Boston or probably both. And I'm none of the above. So, Which I think is something people think about a lot, I think, in this business when they look for jobs. Yeah, it's like I might as well put my hat in the ring here, but there's no way this happens. And so my my agent got me connected with the people from NBC Sports Boston. Had the first interview, thought it went really well. But again, I'm like, no way. Month goes by. They say, they send me an email. Hey, we'd love to bring you in for a demo. Are you free this date? I'm like, I've literally reply all, all caps. Yes. With like five exclamation points. And my agent, Kevin Belby, Syracuse guy, hit me up on the side and was like, Hey man, glad you're excited. But like, let's act like you've been there before. Like, that's a good point. I haven't been here before, but good call. Going for the audition. Scal and I called the, uh, Sixers Celtics second round game six, which was happening live. Um, and the reason we wanted to do a road game was because Scal was in studio. So they do pregame, halftime, and postgame coverage, even when we don't have the game on our air. And after the first round of the playoffs, all the games are national exclusives. So the game wasn't on NBC Sports Boss. And this is like really inside baseball. Sorry if it's boring for anybody. No, 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 no. So the game was on TNT or ESPN, whatever it was. We had the studio programming. So Scal was in the studio. Right. So that gave him a chance to, during the game, come over into this basically broom closet podcast studio where we taped our audition together. And from the moment I met him, Scal was extremely supportive. And we had a freaking blast doing that audition. And there was one point where I can't remember what happened. I think it was a steal and a transition layup. But Scal actually, instead of analyzing the play, looked across the table at me and was like, that was a great call, man. I'm like, Thanks, but I thought I didn't realize we were breaking the fourth wall. Uh, Celtics lead by four, something like that. And so, which we probably had awesome sounded time. great, honestly. Well, maybe I hope like, so. In stride, and, they were like, "That was kids quick." Yeah, right. Like I, I don't even remember if that's what I said, but anyway. So we we do the audition. Thought it went great. Again, didn't expect to get the job. Whole summer goes by. Stay in touch with them. Don't think it's going to happen. Then they set up a meeting with the president of the team, Rich Gotham, um, and. I would assume it was him and the owners, Wick Grosbeck and Steve Paliuka, maybe some other people from the front office who had to sign off. And I, when I met with Rich, I'm like, this is a pretty important, busy guy. Maybe this is going to happen. There can't be that many people who are meeting with him. Um, thought that went great as well. And, you know, a few weeks later, they offered me the job. But the thing is, I had just resigned at ESPN full time. And so I wasn't sure if I could do it. But thankfully, my agent is the best in the business, in my opinion. Um, shout out Syracuse. And the ESPN people were awesome. 
and they signed off on it and now I can do both. And it's quite literally, Joel, the dream job. Like people would ask me when I was in school and right after I left school and when I started ESPN, like, what, what do you want to do? I would always say, I'd love to be the voice of a team and still work at a, at a network. And here we are. So I'm just going to try not to blow it. On that note, if I can go back to one of the very first things you said was you, your whole career to this, this point has been as you, you would feel a stroke of luck. Um, why do you say that? Because I think a lot of people would say, no, you're just really good at what you do at this point in time. But um, what stars have aligned? Well, thanks for that. I mean, I just think that at every step of the way, there have been other people opening doors, you know, and I've just at a certain point, you have to walk through them, but you can't if the door is closed. And so like going back to when I was in high school. I had a really good journalism teacher, right? And that was the time I decided I wanted to do something along these lines is was Mr. Motes. And I never knew that, you know, talking about sports for a living could be a job until I took his class, basically. And, you know, the classic thing every announcer says is when I realized I couldn't play sports for a living, I decided to talk about them. And that is true. Um, but I it wasn't like it wasn't immediate for me. So I had to have that great journalism teacher who showed us the movie all the president's men which is still one of my favorite films and is the reason i drink black coffee because i saw dustin hoffman and robert redford drinking black coffee and ripping cigs in the office and i'm like that's what journalists do so that's what i'm gonna it's do. good you got the coffee and not the cigarettes yes um although definitely not on this zoom call but after this zoom i will have to burn one in my apartment <laughs> here just kidding um so i had a great journalism teacher got into the best school to do this new house, which I never thought I'd get in. Like I was a good high school student, but the late great Dean Branham rest her soul. When I was on my new house tour, I remember her telling us we have an acceptance rate of 9%. I'm like, Oh, I'm out. No, by chance. the way, you, you've been very upfront on some other podcasts. I've heard about how, how, how the best new house is. Oh, it's not <laughs> even close. Like I know you got t ties to ball state, Joel, but I'm sorry. Like there's no doubt we're, we're talking about, we're talking. We are Connor talking Onions about on this podcast next week. If you just want to say it, who I said, Connor Onions on this podcast next week. <laughs> if you just want to say it, so yeah, the Onion. <laughs> I, I love the Onion. Great guy, but he knows. Everybody knows. It's Syracuse and it's everybody else. Everyone else is playing for second. It's like Larry Bird in the uh, three point shootout. So anyway, go to the best school for it, and I think I got in there because you know I I wrote an essay and had a good interview. You know, like I. I needed people to take a chance on me, I think. Also, West Whiteside in the admissions office is a Vikings fan. And so we talked about Teddy Bridgewater. And I think that's why I got in. You know, I was in the best possible class at Syracuse. In my opinion, like, and, and I take a lot of pride in this. I hope one day people look back at the class of 2019 and say that's one of the best. Yeah, it's going right? to Yeah. And, and I was with Noah Eagles, one of my best friends. who's my roommate junior year. Everybody knows what Noah's doing. Uh, Tyler Rocky is one of my best friends. We would trudge through the snow at 5 a.m. to WAER. He's crushing in Chicago, his hometown. James Colgan, Connor Federico, work for golf.com. Dana Gray, Chris Fent. Like, we had a ton of guys in that class. Anthony Mazzini. I don't want to leave anyone out at this point. I shouldn't have named anybody. But, you know what I mean? Like, Oscar speech, yeah. Yeah, we had all these amazing people in our class. And I feel like we all made each other better. And, and truly, Joel, like, you know Noah, I think Noah's leadership and maturity at that age is really the rock of our class. He beat me for every position in Syracuse and I was pissed in the moment, 
but I understood it. And in hindsight, I'm glad that he was the sports director at all the radio stations. And I'm glad that he was, you know, the guy everyone was chasing because Noah was ready for that. Um, and I think a lot of people aren't in college, myself included. I was not mature enough to like make assignments and decide who's going where, but Noah was. And I think that's part of the reason we're all so close still. So that's lucky. Um, and then, you know, I, I win this award in college and I, I sort of feel like that was lucky. Like I got, I got the opportunities to call so many different sports and work with true professionals when I was a student, like Scott Hecht and Kristen Hennessy were the leaders of the show. They were the director and the producer for ACC network extra, which by the way, launched in 2019, my senior year luck. And Scott Heck now like runs broadcasting at the big East. So we're talking yeah, about and, really good and, and did all sorts of crazy, ridiculous NBA and everything else before that. And Scott and Kristen were both at ESPN before they went to Syracuse. So like we're working with real pros and the network launched my senior year, lucky got that stuff on my reel, won this award luck that gave me a little bit of juice i think in the eyes of my agent kevin belby who essentially met, met jim nance me, met jim nance extremely nice guy uh i now have a cell phone number he called me from a restricted number when i won the award but now i have a cell phone number <laughs> uh belby who had told me basically pump the brakes kid when i asked him to represent me right out of school he's like we don't really represent people who just graduated like let's give it a couple of years win the award and then belby's like yeah maybe we can work together. And so I've been with him since graduation. That's luck. Um, I did an audition at ESPN after two years, by the way, the job at Alabama, like an amazing first opportunity and not even the thing I envisioned doing. Um, Cause like you said earlier, Joel, I wanted to do play by play. It's my favorite thing to do, but I did local news for two years, ended up at a station that really emphasized sports doing the sec on a CBS station in Birmingham. Like to me, the the market, the best possible market to cover college football in America. That's lucky. Audition at ESPN with an Alabama alum, Roman Harper is the guy who came into the studio to do my studio audition. He was amazing. That's lucky. So like all these, and then Scal, same thing. I think all those different steps along the way, like I've just had great fortune. And I that's part of the reason why it's important to me to try to help the next generation. Like all the, and all those different strokes of luck, none of that even mentions the fact that I've had amazing mentors. Like I, I, I'm pretty sure I hit you up for a critique when I was in school, Probably. you know, like it wasn't a good one, but it was <laughs> like, it was, it sounds great. This going. thing I sent you is not good. That's for <laughs> sure. Like there's so many people from Syracuse. Part of the reason I say it's the best who have helped us along the way you know, reach the the places we want to be. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know. Maybe the reason I say that is because I think for me to say, like, any success I've had is totally because of me, it's just, just totally misses the point. Um, and I think the only reason I've had any success is because of the people who have helped me reach this point. You know what I mean? Drew, how do people, uh, how do people find you if they're, a Celtics fan, obviously, NBC Sports Boston. Um, I know you're still doing the ESPN thing. So when, yeah. when do they find you next on ESPN? How do they track you down? Good question. I think my next ESPN assignment is Sports Center, uh, but it's not until mid-February. Nice. Um, I did a couple Sports Centers. The funny thing is, I guess the the beautiful the beautiful irony is I started getting better assignments at ESPN when I got another job. Because <laughs> it's like at ESPN 
you know, if, if there's another thing you're doing and they think it sort of raises your profile, then all of a sudden, like your assignments improve, which is fair. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It's like when you're at the bar and nobody wants to talk to the guy who's sitting by himself, um, unless they're as handsome as you are, Joel, no one wants to sit, no one wants to talk to that guy. But if there are like four people around you, it's like, interesting. What does that guy have? I want to know. I want to know more about him. So I think that's sort of what's happening at ESPN. So anyway, I've gotten the chance to host a couple sports centers, which is what's the the first time, like as a sports fan, as a kid, everybody wants to say like, well, we all wanted to say coming up next to sports center, but what's it like to say this is sports center or coming up next on sports center? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like, again, literally living a dream sports center was the show that sort of made me a sports fan. Um, I tell this story and I promise this is germane to what we're talking about. But when I was in Alabama, so Talladega Super Speedway is in the Birmingham market. I don't know anything about NASCAR when I moved down there, aside from the fact that Jimmy Johnson won seven cup championships. Only reason I knew that is because the only time they talked about NASCAR on SportsCenter when I was a kid is when Jimmy Johnson won another one. So that's that's all I knew. And like I was a kid growing up in Minnesota who didn't really like hockey, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, I like hockey now, but I didn't grow up as a hockey fan. I was a basketball football fan. Why? Because that's what they talked about on SportsCenter. Like that, that sort of dictated my whole upbringing as a sports fan. I would watch it until I fell asleep and then watch it when I woke up on replay to the point that ESPN, the logo was burned into my TV at home. So to host that is quite literally a dream come true. And I got to do it with Jay Harris who's like the man, you know, and he was the, the dude I was sitting next to at the desk. And he is a, an amazing, amazing. This is sports center voice. This is sports center brought to you by Domino's. Like he is amazing at that. That's amazing. That, that wasn't that bad yourself. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Drew, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you hopping on. Thank you, Joel. It's great. And if you want to follow me on social media, at Drudel25, Drew DLE25. Yeah, what's the deal with that, by the way? Is that a long time ago? Was that just like you were young? <laughs> yes, I made that in middle school. Um, Drudel was my sister's nickname for me when I was really young. And if you have a bland, generic name, my name is Andrew William Carter. I sound like I should be like the Duchess of Essex, not a play by play announcer. Duke, Duke of Essex. Duke, whatever. Yeah, yeah just trying to think of the most royal sounding title possible. Um, But yes, Drew Carter is a pretty boring name. So I had to come up with something and I've kept it all these years. Drew 25. Do you, do you have a Corgi, by the way, with you right now? Not with me. He's at my parents' place, but I'm probably going to go see him right after this. Big Corgi guy. Yeah. I'm Are you a big Corgi guy? I'm a, I'm a poodle guy because they don't shed. But like for the longest uh, time, all I knew about Drew is I was like, I think his name is Drew Weddle uh, because <laughs> I always read it wrong on Twitter. And then I was yeah. like, and he likes corgis. Uh, yes. so. that, I'm very happy if that's the main personality trait people know about me. Joel, I like puddle. I like poodles, too, but I guess you're just not tough enough to deal with the hair. You're not it, tough it, enough. No, it's it's genet- I have bad genetics. I, I sneeze. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe if you. If you grow up a little bit and you can deal with some hair, then you can get a corgi, and uh, they're the best. Amazing. Drew, thank you, man. Thanks, buddy.